Okay, let's stand and sing, please, to start our service. Salvation belongs to our God. Thank you for being here tonight. Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and unto the be strong in purpose and unity, declaring aloud praise and glory, wisdom and thanks, honor and power and strength. Saved by the blood of the 
the blood of the crucified one. The angels rejoicing because it is done. A child of the Father joined his with the Son. Saved by the blood of the crucified one. Glory, I'm saved. Glory, I'm saved. My sins are all pardoned. My guilt is all gone. Glory, I'm saved. Glory, I'm saved. I'm saved by the blood of the crucified one. Saved by the blood of the crucified one. The Father, he spake. Thank you for the truth of this song that we sing tonight, both of them, Father, and help us as we think about this song, we sing this song, ponder it, to remember that really is the essence of our salvation, it's the blood of Jesus Christ. As witnesses, help us to figure out how to share that to the best of our ability and to um, communicate it that the uh, perfect blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the answer. Thank you for that sacrifice pointed to in the Old Testament times. Look back to now in the church. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Let's be seated. Can you hear me better now? God revealing himself in creation and also in his word as we read down through this psalm. Psalm 19, beginning with verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament, or the expanse, shows forth his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech and night unto night shows knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world in them has he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hidden from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. 
and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep me, your servant, also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. God reveals himself in his creation. He reveals himself in his word. And then David expresses his response to that revelation. As we said this morning, we are going to be taking an offering this evening for the fries as they minister to us this morning. And so uh, as Sheila plays for us, we're also going to be taking an offering tonight. So ushers, if you would come forward here, the plates are here on the chairs. And then we will pray, and Sheila will pray, play for us. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you so much for the Fry's ministry with us this morning, for the preaching of your word, as we were challenged to be very passionate about sharing the gospel of grace with those around us, and to have the, the care and compassion that Christ had for the lost. We pray, Father, for their ministry. We pray for the church there in Epsom, pray in their absence that the church would, would uh, just grow even spiritually as they would uh, uh, undertake the various ministries in the, the Fry's absence. Pray, Father, as they return that they would be used of you to establish leadership within the church and to grow that church so that it can be self-supporting. Thank you again for our time with them this morning. Use this offering to your honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.
Sheila, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Such a, such a pretty piece, isn't it? I love hearing that song. Thanks for playing it tonight, Sheila. <clears throat> um, one small announcement. Just wanted to make you aware, if you hadn't seen it, when you're coming in on the table in the hallway, our information resource table out there, we do have the counseling mini books that we ordered from the night that we had our business meeting. So I encourage you to to check them out. Again, they are geared toward um, topics that you may in particular benefit from or you know someone may take. They're not, uh, not meant necessarily to take just for casual reading to keep for yourself, but pointedly to if it can help you or someone else that you know. 30 different topics out there. Outstanding. I had a chance to read through them myself. Very, very good. So please, they're, they're us for the church for the the taking to grow from or to help someone in need. Check them out before you leave tonight if you have a chance. Um, I am going to read tonight. I have a reading to share with you. And uh, Don, Eddie, and I get all kinds of reading across our desk or on our computer or whatever often that can be geared toward pastors. This article is geared toward a pastor, but it is something that I felt would be nice to, a good thing to read tonight to encourage us on this topic name of the article is Five Ways to Teach the Art of Dying, Recognizing the Sanctity of Life Through All of Life. Um, I cut some of this out to read tonight to save time, but I'll read most of it to you here. Everyone's going to die, but no one wants to talk about it. Even Christians of all people would rather not discuss death or dying, but this isn't the way it should be, and it's not the way it's always been. For many generations, men, women, and children died at home. Their bodies were prepared at home, usually in their own bed. Their family, friends, and neighbors would mourn for them at home before their bodies were accompanied to the church for a memorial service and then to the cemetery for a graveside committal. Death was as much a part of the Christian life as birth. Most churches even had cemeteries adjacent to the church where people would lay their loved ones to rest. And homecoming was typically a Sunday for remembering those who died that year. Historically, death often overshadowed the miracle of birth. Beginning around 1348, a series of plagues in Europe filled the air with cries of anguish and the stench of death. In one year, the Black Death killed more than a quarter of Europe's population. Several waves of death followed, including the Great Plague in London in 1666, when nearly 70,000 died. The situation was so bleak that no one was left unscathed. Husbands, wives, and children died. Rich and poor, noblemen and pauper, priest and farmer were all vulnerable. Alan Verhe, the late professor of theological ethics at Duke Divinity School, described the atmosphere in 15th century Europe in his book, The Christian Art of Dying, Learning from Jesus, saying, 
Fear of contagion and death prompted parents to abandon their children, children to flee from their dying parents, spouses to leave their husbands or wives alone to die. Magistrates and merchants fled the cities for healthier regions. Physicians fled, and so did clergy. But against the ghastly backdrop of the plagues, rather than retreating, some Christians pressed into the darkness to care for the dying. By the 15th century, Christians saw the need to put together an illustrated handbook called in Latin the Ars Morendi, which means the art of dying, to help people prepare for death with faith, hope, humility, and the relinquishment of earthly goods in the hope of the resurrection rather than in fear and trepidation. The Ars Moriendi is a reminder that in the past, churches have helped their members forthrightly face death in the process of dying. It's also a call to pastors and church leaders to do a better job in teaching on death and dying in the regular preaching, teaching, and discipleship ministries of the church. After all, for most people, death is not a sudden event. Even when it is, it's not as though we can't anticipate it. We are all born into the world with a death sentence. The writer of the wisdom of Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time to give birth and a time to die. And Hebrews reminds us it is appointed for people to die once and after this judgment. Since this is true, we should all prepare not only for death, but for whatever the dying process may look like for us. We are in a culture of death deniers. Our euphemisms for death are revealing. People aren't dying, they are on their last legs. Down for the long count, or not long for this world. They don't die, they pass, kick the bucket, or like guests, part, guests at a party, just leave us. We laugh at Woody Allen's well-worn aphorism, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But not only do we not want to be there, we don't even want to talk about it. If we do talk about it, most people are likely to say they want to die in a quick flash, instantaneously, painlessly, and with no warning. That's completely understandable, but on reflection, most of us would probably rather have time to get our legal affairs in order, say goodbye to loved ones, make amends with family members, and then depart in peace. To make matters worse, we have outsourced death and dying to the medical community. Despite the fact most people say they would rather die at home in familiar surroundings with their family members, few do. In some cases, there are more important reasons for being in the hospital so that appropriate care can be administered. But as our long experience uh, with home hospice has taught us, with the right support, people can die comfortably at home. Those who, as it were, stand between earth and the afterlife with those who are dying are standing on holy ground. Just as there are midwives in the birthing process, there are midwives in the dying process. Pastors, church leaders, family members, and other Christians who care for the dying inhabit that special vocation. How can you help equip your church members to prepare for dying and care for those who are dying? Number one, teach classes on death and dying. Everyone in the congregation is going to face these issues and deal with the realities of death and dying. It's part of the equipping ministry of the church to help church members understand what the scriptures teach about death and dying and help them prepare their hearts and lives to care for dying loved ones and to realistically face their own mortality, not morbidly, but in hope of the resurrection. Number two, encourage church members to have the talk. Faith, hope, and love require that we discuss what we fear what we want and what we don't want at the end of life. 
Denial is not the way to face the reality of death. Discussing these things is important to us, and it's important a gift to our loved ones who will have some part in our care either before or after we die. Number three, help church members identify individuals and resources in the community to assist them and their loved ones with preparing for death. This would include Christian medical professions who treat dying patients, such uh, as hospice care physicians and nurses. Additionally, encourage church members to seek legal advice on developing a last will and testament, advanced directives, funeral arrangements, and other documents that will help their loved ones know what they want when they die. And, and on a personal note, those of us in here who have, are in or have been in the ministry know how terrific it is when some things are set in order ahead of time. We watch that with the families, and they come in very much with a sense of relief knowing what to expect. Uh, number four, visit, communicate, and be present with those who are dying. Because we are so uncomfortable with the subject of death and dying, those who are near the end of life often feel abandoned by friends and family members. They seem to be around during the good times, but as life is coming to an end, they're not present. Finally, number five, never allow anyone to discontinue care. Sometimes medical terminology can miscommunicate. There may come a time when it's appropriate to, to discontinue medical interventions or treatments, but there is never a time to discontinue care. In fact, when decisions are made to pull back on technology, it's important to increase the amount of care individuals receive at the end of life. If medicine has done all it can do, we can still pray, read scripture, sing hymns, and be present with those who are dying. At the heart of the Christian worship are profound reminders of death and dying, a cross, a communion table, and a baptistry. Each tells the story of death and resurrection. Living well as Christians requires that we help one another discover the art of dying well. Let me conclude by praying. Father, thank you so much that dying is not the end of it for us as believers, but um, many of us, maybe all of us, will face death before the rapture. We don't know. You know those things. And uh, we just want to be ready, not only spiritually to, to meet you, but physically as well. Help us to be sensitive to those who are struggling toward the end. Uh, help us not leave them alone. Help us to, to be there for them and to pray for them and to comfort them. Lord, uh, very much in your, in your word do you talk about those that are the elderly and uh, the needy. And Father, we're all headed there. If you are not coming back in the next several years, we know that that's where we're headed as well. So Father, help us to be just loving in those circumstances. Help us to be kind, sacrificial, and do what you want us to do so that we can be a testimony to the very end. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Mike. In talking with the Fries uh, this afternoon as we had lunch with them, uh, one of the things he mentioned, difference between America and over in England, um, he said, over in England, when someone dies, they do not want the pastor or the church to contact them, and they do not want help from the pastor or the church at that time. They deal with it by themselves as family, and they do not want the church and pastor involved. Now, 
He said, you usually have the funeral then three or four months later, and then the church and the pastor get involved. But at the time of death, they don't want the pastor or church involved. And he said he still doesn't understand that. He still doesn't like it. He wants to try to change that. But uh, he said, you know, around here, you know, as a church, we want to give meals. We want to help. We want to be involved. Uh, immediately, you know, we as pastors call and we, we go visit and talk. And he said they do not want that over there. And they're very highly offended if you try. So just uh, very interesting. He's not sure what the mindset is, why they, they do that. But uh, that's the, the difference. So thank you, Mike. Appreciate that. Psalm 19, as we're working our way through the Psalms and just kind of picking out some of the selected Psalms, this is a familiar one, so I thought it'd be a good one for us to look at. We, we have looked at it in the past, but just a, a great reminder. Let me begin by asking you the, this uh, question, or just use your imagination a little bit. What would you think of, of snatching somebody out of the jungles of Africa or the jungles of of the Amazon, just snatching them out, flying them to New York City, plop them down in the middle of New York City, and abandon them there. Use your imagination. What would that be like for that poor individual? Well, they would have, yeah, it would be cruel. They'd have no idea where they are, what they're supposed to do. They'd wander around aimlessly. They wouldn't have any idea of what to, what's going on. It would be extremely cruel. It would be extremely confusing. It would just... Uh, like I said, just they would be aimless, purposeless. They wouldn't know. I th think, really, that's a good description of an individual who tries to navigate life with no knowledge of God. They are in a place that God created, but they want nothing to do with that God who created it. So they have no idea, really, where they are, how they got here, where they're going, just like that guy from the jungle in New York City, no idea where they are or what they're supposed to do or where they're going. Isn't that the person who wants nothing to do with God? They really have no answer as to who they are, what they're supposed to do here, where they're going. Wandering through life aimlessly, really, there is no, there is no purpose if God's left out of it. And so, to really navigate life, we need to know God. How do we get to know Him? Where do we look for knowledge of God? One of Job's friends asked the question, can you by searching find out God? Well, the answer to that question is depending on where you're searching. <laughs> if you're searching from within yourself, no, you will not find out God. But if you're searching where he has revealed himself, we can gain knowledge of God. And God certainly has revealed himself. If we're going to know God, it's God who has to take that initiative. If God wants to hide himself, we will never find him. We'll never know him. But God doesn't want to hide himself. God has revealed himself. And as he's revealed himself, we can look at that revelation. We can gain knowledge of God. And so the question is, where has he revealed himself? Where do we search out God? And often when we think of revelation, we, 
we uh, divide it into two categories. We speak of general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is creation. God has revealed himself in his creation. Special revelation is God's Son and God's Word. As it relates to, to Christ, we read in John chapter 1, verse 18, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. So the Son revealed the Father. The Son declared the Father. The Son made known the Father. That's special revelation. And then, of course, God makes Himself known in His Word. Now, as far as we're concerned, living today, we're not living at the time that the Son lived. When son was, the Son was living here on the earth, He revealed the Father. And so the disciples saw the Father in the Son, and, and that knowledge of the Father was seen through the Son, but the Son's not in our presence today and physically. And so for us today, it really comes down to creation and the Word. The only way we know anything about the Son is through the Word. And so we see God, gain knowledge of God. God has revealed Himself in His creation and in His Word. And so that's really what David's talking about here in Psalm 19. Verses 1 through 6, it's God revealing Himself in His creation. Verses 7 through 11, it's God revealing Himself in His Word. And then verses 12 through 14 is David's response to that revelation. Let's bow in prayer. Guide us, Father, this evening as we look at this psalm, and I pray that we would gain knowledge of you even as we study your word this evening. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. May we search you out in those places of revelation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few weeks ago, maybe a couple months ago, we kind of raised the, the question, if there is a God, could He reveal Himself? And obviously you think about that, well, if He's any kind of God at all, if He has any kind of power, of course He could reveal Himself. If He could reveal Himself, should He reveal Himself? Well, again, if He, if he has any, any kind of love whatsoever, if He if he could reveal himself, then he certainly should. Why hide it if he has any kind of love at all? So if he could, he certainly should. And then if he should, would he? Well, if he's any kind of a benevolent God at all, if he could and he should, then he certainly would reveal himself. And God has. He could, he should, and he would, and he did. And we read in Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The word declare here is the word to show, uh, to reveal, to make known. It, it really comes from a root word that means to, to lift high and conspicuous. If I wanted to make something known to you that you didn't know, one way to do that would be to make a big banner or to just put it on the screen up there and, and, and write on that banner on the screen what I want you to know. And I'd, I'd put it high 
and conspicuous so that you could see it and you could know it. Well, that's, that's this word. The heavens are high and conspicuous, and they're making known something that we otherwise wouldn't know. And that's the glory of God. The glory of God. Now, what, what is meant by the glory of God? We've said many times, and we won't take time to develop this thought from Scripture, but really, when it comes down to the glory of God, it, the glory of God is simply the sum total of His attributes. It's the sum total of His attributes. The glory of God just refers to, to His being and who He is. The heavens declare who God is. The heavens declare his, the sum total of His attributes. We look at the heavens and, and we can see His, his omnipotence, we can see his, his power, his, his, uh, uh, his goodness in, in giving us such a beautiful creation. We, we can see his faithfulness. You know, the, the sun comes up every morning and sets every evening, day after day after day for thousands of years. It's never failed. It is faithful. Well, doesn't that teach us the faithfulness of God? You know, we, we can look at the, the heavens and, and it declares the sum total of its attributes. We, we can begin to know God. God is powerful. God is loving. God is faithful. The majesty of God is seen in His creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament shows His handiwork. The word firmament is better translated the expanse. Just talking about the expanse of, of heaven. Uh, the expanse of heaven uh, shows his handiwork. You know, if, if I was to paint a picture, and then Lloyd was also to paint a picture, and then you would look at those two pictures, you would determine that one of us knew what they were doing, <laughs> and one of us didn't. You look at the handiwork of somebody, and you can tell something about that person. And you would look at my picture and say, Don doesn't have it. <laughs> you look at Lloyd and say, he knows what he's doing. You look at the handiwork of God and you can say, man, God knows what he's doing. He's got skill. He's got ability. He's got power. He knows what he's doing. He's got wisdom. We can see, again, the, the omniscience of God, the, his wisdom, his, his power, the omnipotence of God, even his omnipresence. You look at the expanse. And you've got this galaxy out here several million light years away, and, and, and yet he's also in control here on earth. Doesn't that speak of his, his omnipresence? He, he's, he's everywhere in this great expanse as he's created all it shows forth his handiwork. Um, we're familiar with, with uh, Psalm 1, and, and you don't need to turn to it, but just... Uh, for the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse shows His handiwork. It, it, it gives us His uh, attributes, and we gain knowledge of God. And, and in this, we gain knowledge of His of his eternal power. We gain knowledge of his eternality. We gain knowledge of his power. We gain knowledge of his Godhead or, or simply his deity. Uh, you look at the heavens and you, you know that God is far above us. That's his deity. He's different than us. 
He's outside of us. You just see that by looking at, at the heavens. Um, but it goes on and says, because when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations or empty in their thoughts, and they, in their, their foolish heart was darkened, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. We see the glory of God. We see His handiwork, and man wants nothing to do with that God. He's revealed Himself. Man sees that power. Man sees that, that wisdom, and they don't want that God. That glory that the heavens declare, man takes it and changes the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. That glory that the heavens declare, man doesn't want that God. They want a God that's more like them. That they, can, they, can, uh, they don't have to really uh, obey a God like them. If it's a God that the heavens declare, that God, they have to submit to that God. They don't want to submit to that God. And so they make a God that's like them, that they can debate with and discuss with and, and compromise with. But the heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse shows His handiwork. You know, again, you look at that expanse, and I, I've mentioned before how I, I, I'm not an astronomist or anything else, but I do enjoy some of those uh, kinds of things. And uh, again, I, I know I've shared this, but just a great reminder of, of God. If you're traveling at the speed of light, you leave earth at the speed of light, you'll be to the moon in one and a half seconds. You'll be to the sun in eight minutes. Um, Think about that for a minute. When you see the sun come up over the horizon, what you're seeing happened eight minutes ago. You're living in the past when you look at the sun. <laughs> Time travel. Pretty cool, huh? Um, so you're at the sun in eight minutes. In one day, you'll be to the end of our solar system. In other words, you'll be out to Pluto, the end of our solar system. It'll take you four years to get to the nearest star outside of the sun. Of course, the sun is a star, but the next nearest star will take you four years to get there, traveling at the speed of light. It's going to take you 10,000 years to get to the end of our galaxy, the Milky Way. It's going to take you 2 million years to get to the next galaxy. Two million years traveling at the speed of light to get to the next galaxy, and there are millions of galaxies. Does anyone wonder why it's called the expanse? <laughs> That's the handiwork of God. What a mighty, powerful, majestic God. Omniscient. That's the God that the heavens declare. Day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night shows knowledge, uttereth speech. That word uttereth speech, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's really a word that means to gush forth or to pour forth. The, the, the creation is just gushing forth with the knowledge of God. You know, those of us who have had children, you know, a, a young child, you know, they 
maybe gone for the day and, and they've done something exciting. Maybe they've gone to an amusement park or something. They come home and, and maybe you as a parent, you weren't with them and, and they're just gushing forth, aren't they, with all kinds of information, how much fun they had and what they did and, and they just can't stop talking. That's creation. Creation is gushing forth with the knowledge of God. And it's day unto day and it's night unto night. It never ceases to gush forth the knowledge of God. It's been gushing forth for 6,000 years and will continue to do so until God makes a new heaven and a new earth that will continue to gush forth for eternity. Gushing forth day unto day, night unto night, showing knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Uh, the, the language that creation speaks as gushing forth the knowledge of God, everyone can understand it. It speaks everyone's language. You know, as missionaries take, you know, as missionaries go to, to foreign fields and they take the word of God, the, one of the hindrances sometimes is that language barrier. The missionary needs to learn the language of the country where they're at and, and then the Bible needs to be translated into that, into that country's language and, and that's a challenge. and can create a barrier, but, but there is no such barrier with creation as God reveals himself in his creation. Creation speaks everyone's language. The line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. The line's gone out. The, the idea there is that it seems as though it's, it's the idea that the, the earth has been measured to make sure then that the, the creation goes to the end of the earth with its language and with its knowledge. And so it's just kind of a, a poetic way of saying that the earth has been measured and it's been made sure that to the ends of that earth that creation is going to gush forth with the knowledge and glory of God. Um, and then it kind of turns to the sun as the, the prime example in them as he set a tabernacle for the sun. He's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run a race. He's going forth is from the end of the heaven and his circuit unto the ends of it and there is nothing hidden from the heat thereof. Just uses the sun as, as one example of this creation. And as we said earlier, it's the faithfulness of God that we see in the sun. It, it comes up every day and sets every day, and it, it goes from its circuit, uh, coming up in the east, setting in the west, every day, very faithfully, never fails. There are some days, maybe in January, that we question the last part of that verse, nothing hidden from its heat, but... Uh, even in January, we're getting heat from the sun. The heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse shows forth His handiwork. God has revealed Himself in creation. Now, He hasn't revealed everything about Himself in creation. We can certainly know God, and as Romans chapter 1 says, even in creation, we can know enough about God that we are without excuse. But, Looking at creation, you can't know how to be saved. Looking at creation, you're not going to learn about Christ coming to this creation as a man and taking upon the sins of man and dying in man's place. You're not going to learn that looking at creation. So God reveals himself and reveals enough about himself in his creation that man's without excuse, but we need further revelation to really know how to be saved and spend eternity with him. 
And so David, in verse 7, begins to look at the revelation of God's Word. And as we come to verses 7 through 11, we, we see God's Word as God's revelation. He, he uses uh, different terms in, in verse 7, the law, the testimony, verse 8, the statutes and the commandments, verse 9, the fear of the Lord, and, and also in verse 9, the ordinances or judgments. All of those words are referring to the Word of God in a certain aspect of that Word. And so the Word of God is, is the law, the testimony, the statutes, the commandments. It's talking about the Word of God. And in each one of these, the psalmist speaks of God's Word, describes what God's Word is like, and then tells us what that Word does for us. And so let's break that down just very quickly. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The law of the Lord. Again, that's the term used here with reference to God's Word. It's perfect. Um, it's blameless. It's spotless. Uh, there's no falsehood in it whatsoever. It's perfect. But it's also perfect in the sense that it's complete. Uh, there is absolutely nothing that you can add to God's Word that, that's uh, uh, going to reveal Anything that is beyond what we need to know. In other words, God's Word is complete. We, he's given us everything that we need to know. Now, there's more that we're going to learn for God throughout eternity. But for right now, His Word's complete. His Word is, is perfect. It has given us everything we need to know for right now. He's given us everything we need to know as, as we read in, in, in 1 Peter. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We know everything we need to know from God's Word. It's complete. Nothing has to be added to it. And certainly if it's complete, we certainly shouldn't take anything from it. That would make it incomplete. It's perfect just as it is. It's blameless. It's spotless just as it is. And so the law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. That's what I said earlier. You you can look at creation and we gain knowledge of God, but you're not going to be converted by looking at creation. It's the Word of God that's going to convert us. That's the, that's the Word of God that's going to turn us from our sin to Him. The Word of God tells us how we can do that. Uh, creation's not going to tell us how to be converted. The Word of God tells us how to be converted, to turn from our sin and, and to God, to turn from our sin to holiness. The Word of God, that perfect Word of God, is what converts the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The Word of God is referred here as the testimony of the Lord. Um, when you think of a testimony, you think of, of a witness on the witness stand. And he gives his testimony. And as a witness gives his testimony, he's, he's telling what he knows. He's telling what he's seen. He's telling what he's heard. Well, that's the Word of God. It's God's testimony. He's telling us what he knows. He's telling us what he's seen. He's telling us what he's heard. Uh, he's telling us about himself. It's his testimony. 
Sometimes we use the word testimony as we talk about uh, how we've been saved and we're telling people um, how God has saved us. Well, this is God's testimony of, of who He is and, and what He's doing. The Word of God is God's testimony. We think of, of God's testimony, again, a, a, a witness is giving his testimony of what he's seen. That's why we go back to Genesis chapter 1. We believe in creation. There wasn't anybody else here but God. And he's given us his testimony of what he saw at creation. He spoke, let there be light, and there was light. That's God's testimony. He was the only one here to see it. So he's giving his testimony to us to believe it. And so the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's sure. It's, uh, it's established. It's firm. That testimony of Genesis chapter 1, it's sure. It's firm. It cannot be changed. Man tries to change it. Man tries to tell us that Genesis chapter 1 is just myth. It's just an allegory. No, it's established. It's truth. It's sure. It's firm. Uh, it's not something, God's word is not unsettled. It's not vacillating. It's not changing. It's established. It will not change. It cannot change. Testimony of the Lord is sure. Making wise the simple. The word simple here is the idea of one who, who uh, lacks knowledge and therefore is easily led astray. And isn't that the perfect definition of man? We lack knowledge, easily led astray. But God's testimony, God's word, will make us wise. We'll gain knowledge. And as we gain that knowledge, we gain truth, and we're not going to be misled. We're not going to be led astray because we have truth and we have knowledge. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The word statutes here would be uh, mandates, rules. We sometimes kind of don't like the thought of rules. But yes, God's Word has some rules in it and some mandates in it. But those rules and those mandates, those statutes, they are right. They are right. They're, they're, they're just. They're fair. They're equitable. They're proper. You know, sometimes our legislative bodies, whether it be state or federal, you know, they can sometimes make some bad laws. They can sometimes make some bad rules. Maybe their intent is right, but they make some bad rules and there's some unintended consequences. God's rules, God's mandates never have unintended consequences. They are right. They're fair. They're equitable. Rejoicing the heart. Because they are uh, right, because they are fair and just, as you obey those mandates... It's going to give you rejoicing because there are no unintended consequences. It's going to work out just right as we obey those commands because they are right. And so as they turn out right, the consequences are exactly what God intends and, and they are right consequences, we can rejoice. 
in those consequences. The commandments of the Lord are pure, enlightening the eyes. The commandments of the Lord are pure. They're, they're, there's no corruption in God's commandments. They are not, uh, God does not give his commandments from any corrupt motives. Again, sometimes our legislative bodies can, can give laws and commands and rules that they really, they really do have corrupt motives involved. But not God's commands. They're not from corrupt motives. And it's not going to lead us to any kind of corruption. As we obey God's commands, there will be no corrupt results from that obedience. It will never lead us to corruption. The commandments of the Lord are pure. Enlightening the eyes. Enlightening the eyes in the sense that, again, left to ourselves, we want to not retain God in our knowledge, um, we're just going to be very confused in life. We're going to be like that person from the jungle in New York City. They're just going to wander around aimlessly. We're, we're not going to know what, what we're here for, what the purpose of life is all about. But as we look at God's Word and, and His commandments, it's going to enlighten the eyes. We're going to have understanding. We're going to know where we came from and why we're here and where we're going. We've got understanding because our eyes are enlightened to the truth. A good understanding have they who keep your commandments, Psalm 111, verse 10. The fear of the Lord, he says, is clean, enduring forever. We said that these words all refer to the word of, uh, the word of God, and yet how does the fear of the Lord, how does that refer to the word of God? Well, I think, as David writes this again poetically, um, it's in God's Word that we learn about God, and so we learn to fear God. And so this fear of the Lord is, is the, the principle of, of what God's Word teaches. And this fear is this, this reverence for God, this trust in God. Um, we learn about God in His Word, and we, we learn that trust and that reverence for Him and that respect for Him that, that leads us to our worship of Him. That all comes from God's Word. And so we have this, this reverence and trust and worship of God as we study His Word. And that reverence and that trust and that worship, he says, it's clean. It's clean. As we... we study God's Word and we learn to, to trust and, and worship Him, we begin to realize how unclean we are. And we seek cleansing from Him. The fear of the Lord is clean. We learn of who God is from His Word. We want to worship Him, but we realize how unclean we are. We can't worship Him until we are cleansed. And so we go to Him for cleansing. It's clean. Enduring forever. That cleansing indeed will be forever as we are in His presence forever, forgiven of our sins, cleansed from our sin, and living with Him forever. I hurry. The ordinances of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The ordinances are the judgments. It's really a word that refers to, to God's government of His creation. Again, it's in His Word that we learn how does God govern His creation. And as He, he governs His creation, He's going to govern it in truth and righteousness. 
He's going to govern his creation in truth and righteousness. Everything he does is according to truth or according to reality. Sometimes the idea of truth is reality. He governs according to reality. He doesn't govern according to what could be or what might be, but what is. He governs according to what is, according to reality. And as he governs, he governs righteously. He never makes a mistake. He never does anything wrong in his government. It's righteous altogether. More to be desired than they, than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Of course, God's word should be desired more than gold. Gold can't convert the soul. Gold can't make wise the simple. Gold can't rejoice the heart. Gold can't, can't uh, enlighten the eyes. Gold will not endure forever, but God's word will. And so certainly we ought to desire God's word more than gold. Sweeter also than honey in the honeycomb. Even God's commandments, even God's statutes, His rules, His mandates, even they're sweet. Why? Because they are pure. They are clean. They, they will not lead us to any kind of corruption. They will lead us to that which is right and pure and good. And so it's sweet. I'm afraid sometimes we've forgotten that God's Word is sweet. Why do I say that? I think we can judge in our own lives I can judge in my life how sweet I think God's Word is by looking at how much time I spend in it. You know, I can spend a lot of time eating a sweet piece of cake or pie. <laughs> how much time do I spend reading God's Word? If, if I really think it's sweet, I'm going to spend some time in it. If I'm not spending much time in it, apparently I have forgotten about the sweetness of God's Word. He says in verse 11, Moreover by them is your servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. We, we do have warning of consequences as we read God's Word, but we also have, have uh, um, the rewards of obedience as we read God's Word. And so we are warned, but we are also told of the rewards of obedience. And that's, again, why it's so sweet to us. It, it's sweet to be warned. Sometimes we don't like it, but when you really start, you realize how sweet it is, you know, isn't it good to know that if I do this, it's going to turn out badly? <laughs> you know, God's Word tells us if I do this, it's going to turn out badly. If I do this, there's reward. That's sweet. And so David's response to God's Word. Who can understand his heir? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over him. Then shall I be upright and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. His first response is he recognizes his own sinfulness. When we see God revealed in creation, revealed in his word, we see our sin. So he recognizes the sinfulness of God. He recognizes his need for cleansing and he desires that cleansing. Cleanse me from my sin. Cleanse me from secret fault. So he sees his sin. He desires cleansing. And then he recognizes that it's only through the strength of God that he can have that cleansing. 
Notice in verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. He recognizes he needs the strength of God to be redeemed, to be cleansed from his sin. That's his response to God's revelation. He sees his sinfulness, he desires cleansing, and he goes to God for the strength and redemption for that cleansing. I trust that we recognize that the only strength we have is in God. The only redemption we have is in God. And that we rejoice in that strength and that redemption. Let's bow in prayer. Thank you, Father, so much for your love and grace to us. Thank you for your revelation that you have indeed made yourself known through your creation and through your word. Help us to study it. Help us to desire it more than gold, to recognize its sweetness, to spend time in your word, to know you more. May it indeed uh, cause us to recognize our sin, to desire cleansing, and to come to you for strength as we would look to you for that redemption. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Shall we stand? Keep us safe, Father, as we return to our homes, and throughout this week, may we continue to meditate upon your truth and your word. Help us to be faithful in our witness and in our testimony. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good evening. May God bless you.